Father, we stand amazed as we think of the place where You were laying. Now that stone was rolled away. And in the rolling away, Lord, the resurrection had already occurred. And it's in that resurrection that we have the fullness of life, both now and for eternity. Father, we praise You. We thank You as the psalmist declares Your glory and Your might. May we see that in our lives today. And yet, Father, I know that there are some who, as David said, his tears have been his food. Lord, we pray today that You would reveal Yourself to such a one, that You would grant life, that You would grant mercy and peace. Open our minds and our hearts this day as we look into Your Word, I pray. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please uh, please be seated. It was in uh, 1848 that the United States government joined with a number of uh, religious organizations and humanitarian organizations who, seeing the true devastation of shipwrecks along the Atlantic coast and the cost in lives and uh, merchandise and everything else, uh, they, they formed what was called the United States Life Saving Station or Service uh, Program. And in 1915, the United States Life Saving Service joined with the Revenue Cutter Service and became the Coast Guard. That's exactly right. In North Carolina, at Caffrey's uh, uh, Inlet, the fifth of seven stations that were constructed in 1878 uh, began. It was decommissioned in the 1950s, and on it's it's on the National Historic uh, uh, his, uh, Place uh, Register of Historic Places, right? And it was lovingly restored as uh, Life Saving Station Number Five. Restaurant, And apparently there you can get what's known as the best breakfast on the Outer Banks. Haven't been there, I don't know, but it's a favorite in, in North Carolina. And while many of those life-saving stations, uh, like uh, number five there, became restaurants, others ultimately became state parks. And some became uh, museums. Others uh, still uh, were taken over by things like the Kiwanis Club and other things. And then there was some that became country clubs. I mean, pretty elaborate, pretty elegant uh, uh, places. And, and given that these stations along the coast were the, uh, the first populated, or the first place where there were permanent people hanging out there, and they obviously had to get back and forth, right? If you rescue somebody, you can't keep them at the station. So roads were built and so forth and so on. And so what follows uh, was inevitable. And this is my take. You've probably heard this before. And I don't think any of you around in 1915 or 1920 or 1890 when this would, you would have been able to see this before your very eyes. But I do believe that it's still relevant. And it's on the Atlantic seaboard, right, where these 
uh, ships often wrecked, uh, there was often a simple life-saving station. It was just a hut, really, a place where you could build a fire and where people could keep warm. And they had a boat. And when they discovered that there was a shipwreck, then they would go out across the surf in the boat and then they would save as many people as they could. They tirelessly searched the sea for the lost. Training, equipping, nurturing was constant so that they would have the desired result, and that is lives were saved. And many were saved. In fact, so many were saved. And some of the people traveling from Europe over to here were actually people of means and wealth. And so they were so impressed by this uh, that they began to give of their money and their time and their effort to support the work. And so, consequently, more boats were bought, more crews were trained. It's a, a wonderful, a wonderful thing as these little life stations grew. Now, what as is common to happen, people began to come because they liked the beach, not because they were really that interested in the life-saving station. But so they're... Uh, concern was primarily not the life-saving. They didn't get out there and do the, the stuff in the boat like none of us do today unless you're coast, coasty. We got any guardsmen in here? Maybe? No? Okay. Right? So what they would do... Well, we're not directly on the coast either, so I guess that gives us some space there. But anyway... They could focus on what they could focus on, and that would be the building, that would be the grounds, that would be ways to bring other people to this place, which was now growing and becoming beautiful. And pretty soon, pretty soon, there were more people who didn't know anything about the life-saving than the life-savers themselves. And pretty soon, after a period of time, there were several hurricanes that came through, washed over the coast. By the way, all this is true, folks. It's a parable, but it's all true. And wash these little stations away. And so the people who were at these little stations, they said, you know what? We need to move further inland so it doesn't destroy our buildings. And the lifesaver said, all we need is a spot. And we got to be next to the ocean. Otherwise, they said, well, go ahead and do that. And then we're going to move inland and we're going to make our place. And then pretty soon, those places simply became places of entertainment or amusement or of social gathering of the highest sort. And the lifesavers were out there and they, they admired them and they whispered about them and they said, ooh, those are the ones who go and they risk their life. But in order to avoid these kinds of tragedies, that is not for us. One of the ways that they knew these people who were lifesavers was they had a camaraderie that was amazing. They had what in the military we call esprit de corps. In fact, one could say that they loved one another and you could tell who were the people who would go out and do this work by the way they acted towards one another. If you visit the Atlantic seacoast today, you'll find all these things. You'll find the museums. You'll find the state parks, you'll find the different clubs, and you'll find some very exclusive places. Or you might even enjoy it, the best breakfast in the Outer Banks. 
if you go to station house number five. But as for the camaraderie and the love that resulted from those fighting to save the lost, it's hard to find. And when it is found, for some reason or another, it just seems strangely out of place. You know, the process of moving from a passionate mission to something other it seems to be the normal, natural order of things. And I believe that to be the case. I believe that left to ourselves, that's exactly what people do in whatever their context is. And so it requires an intentionality to do something different. And as it turns out, loving one another as Jesus Christ commands is not something that we're able to internally pump up. Oh, I love you, I love you. I'm feeling the love. Are you feeling the love yet? Are you feeling it? That's not what it is. The love is something that actually ensues. That is, it follows from being yoked together in the work for Jesus Christ. In the military, this occurs when you fight with one another, or I should say alongside one another. In the church, it occurs when you go out cold turkey witnessing, right? You've heard the story of, uh, I wish I could remember his name, it slips me right now, but uh, it was announced that he was going to teach the people to pray on Wednesday night. And so everybody was deeply concerned and they wanted to go and learn how to pray because he, he could really pray. And so they all showed up and he said, okay, let's divide up into teams of four, get in your cars, we're going to go and witness to the neighborhood. And they said, uh, whoa, 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 you said you were going to teach us how to pray. And he said, I'll guarantee you, by the time you get out of that car door and knock on the door of the house, you'll learn how to pray. (laughs) I think that we're going to see that this passage today revolves really around something that is not apparent on the surface. But when we're done, you'll see it as well. Turn with me to John 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13, is found on page 900 in the Pew Bible, where Jesus, and I'll start at uh, verse 21 to, to give some context here. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And I'm going to talk about what these things were in story form uh, as, as we go along. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So remember now, we've mentioned this before, when they would eat in that day and time, they didn't sit at a square table or a round table or a rectangular table. They didn't sit at a table at all. They reclined in a like the form of a U. So when it says the disciple that leaned on Jesus' breast, that's exactly what they're talking about. They would lean on one another, lean on their left arm 
and eat with their right hand. And so what you have here is they're, they're eating and, G, and Jesus and John are right next to each other. And so uh, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus who was speaking. Ask him, ask him, ask him. Who's he talking about? So that disciple, i.e. John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glory, glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek Me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The night before Jesus was crucified, He and the twelve disciples were celebrating the Passover dinner. And Jesus had just washed their feet. So it's after these things. That's one of the these things. Just washed their feet. And in His, his usual manner, He asked them, uh, Do you understand? Do you understand what it is that I have done? And uh, what He meant through this was that if He, as their teacher, did this, then they, as His students, should too. Now, his action offers some critical, at least one critical hint as to what may have been playing out in the disciples' minds. His mission was, even by the disciples, certainly by the religious rulers, certainly by the politicians, but even by the disciples, his mission was not entirely, but almost entirely misunderstood. And this, we, we see this in several places. You remember when uh, John and James, they, uh, they got into an argument with one another. And uh, I think the way that they solved it was they said, oh, well, hey, I know. One will be on the right and one will be on the left. So they went to Jesus and they said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, this is your right hand, this is your left hand, make it happen. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> Back off a little bit, right? That's not mine to do and besides all that... But the important point is what they did. And on numerous occasions, the disciples were found arguing with one another. On one uh, case, they argued about who was uh, the greatest. 
And Jesus said, hey, you know, you guys, you're not getting this. What you need to understand is that it's the least, the least among you, right, is the greatest. So why did they argue? It's something uh, that's never been a part of Christianity, and so that's why we don't know about it. It, it, it's, but it's deeply embedded in the Jewish mind. And that is, the Jews were looking not for one, but for two messiahs. You say, that's ridiculous, John. That's not what was, not only does that sound strange to our ear, because the New Testament is clear that the Messiah is God's only Son. Therefore, there could only be one. You realize that we have that understanding because of 2,000 years of history? If you were in that day, in that time, there is no way that you could reconcile Isaiah 53 with the coming king who was going to establish the kingdom forever. And so they had a real dilemma that they were, they were trying to solve. If you study how the Jews understood the Messiah in Jesus' day, you'll find out that they had two. Many ancient rabbis spoke of these two Messiahs. They even had names. One was the Messiah who conquers, and the other was the one who suffers. Raphael Patai, an eminent Hebrew scholar who taught at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, wrote this, When the death of the Messiah became an established tenet, this was felt to be irreconcilable with the belief in the Messiah as Redeemer, who would usher in the blissful millennium of the Messianic age. The dilemma was solved by splitting the person of the Messiah in two. One of them, called Messiah ben Joseph, was to raise the armies of Israel against their enemies. And after many Miracles and after many victories would fall victim to Gog and Magog. He would be killed. The other Messiah, uh, Messiah ben, jo- uh, ben David, would come after him and would lead Israel to the ultimate victory, the triumph, and the error of uh, messianic bliss. So while we as Christians with 2,000 years of history Understand the Messiah is one person who came once and will come again. The Jews divided this person into two. And what is crucial here is that they likely thought it was split because you, you actually have the, the, the different phrases in the, in the Scripture as to what people thought and what the disciples thought. But to me, it's a little hint in Thomas's words that they thought that Jesus was the suffering Messiah and not the conquering Messiah. I mean, you, you hear uh, Thomas say this uh, after the death of Lazarus when he says this, Let us go with him, or let us also go, that we may die with him. There's no way that they would have thought the conquering Messiah would die. I mean, and even the suffering Messiah would raise armies and have many victories. This 
or some kind of close thing to this. We don't know exactly. We don't know what was in their minds. But we know that these were the teachings. And we know that by their behaviors, they fully expected an earthly kingdom to come then and there. And so it was something like this and that they expected. Even, even Herod, we get a sense of, of this. When the wise men came from the east, and uh, he asked this question, Where is he who is born king of the Jews, that I may worship him? Matthew 2. And while Herod was a Jew religiously, he wasn't a Jew culturally. He was an Idumean. But he understood Jewish culture, and he understood this thinking that the Messiah that they expected, at least in part, was going to be the king. And if he was a king, he was a threat to his rule. He had no intent to worship the child. His intent was to slaughter the child. And in fact, when he couldn't specifically identify who the child was, every child to and under was slaughtered and put to the sword. Herod wasn't the only one who expected that from the Messiah being a king. When the people desired the son of David, they, they'd hoped for the one who had been prophesied by Moses, right? One who would restore the dynasty, the kingdom of Israel. I mean, and at one point, Jesus, he fed 5,000 uh, miraculously. And so they were convinced that this is the one of whom Moses spoke of, the prophet who is to come into the world. John 6. This was a reference to Moses' prophecy where he said, a prophet like me is going to arise in Deuteronomy 18. A king who can heal you, a king who can feed you, a king who can put every enemy at your feet and under his rule, a king who can bring peace. Now that's the kind of king we want. Yeah? Yeah? And we're going to have that one day. We will. But not this day. And not then. In John 6, it goes on to say, When Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take Him away by force to make Him king, He departed again to the mountain by Himself alone. To become king over Israel at this time was not a part of His mission. And even after His death, In resurrection, the disciples were still focused on this notion that He was going to restore the kingdom right now. So we see in Acts 1-6, the Lord Lord shows up. And what's their first question? Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, so now, maybe they're starting to get a clue that it's the same person. Maybe this suffering Messiah and conquering Messiah are the same. And he says, so they asked him, are you going to do this now? And they didn't get it. They, they did not get it. A couple of other things. Jesus' trial, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Ego me, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus told him, uh, yes, he was the Messiah. And then he told Pilate, 
something that's in the, in the same way. He says, you know, are you a king? Yeah, I'm a king. But it's not now and it's not here. It's in a future kingdom that's going to be established in a future time. So all of this and this foot washing was actually designed to prepare the disciples for the worst night of their lives. And he was trying to get them straight. Listen, it's not going to happen the way you think it's going to happen. And you're going to have a tendency to flee. You're going to have a tendency not to serve not only me, but not to serve one another. So ask him, he asked him, do you understand? Do you get it? And then after he does that, something happens. And that's where we picked up the text in 21. His mood became disquieted. It says here that that, that, word, that word has this sense that his emotional calm abandoned him. He got upset. He, he started to become upset about things. And he says this in verse 25, Truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then we're told, as we read in the text, that John was reclining next to Jesus. And so Peter asked John, ask him. And the Lord answered and said, the one whom I give the morsel. And so he did. Now, here's the thing. In verse 28, we're told that no one got it. Even John. John heard it, but it didn't register. I don't think that John had a notion of Judas as being someone who had the capability to do that. You could do a whole sermon series on that. I do believe that they thought that he was one of the most trusted of all the disciples. Clearly. Why? Because they're the ones who let him keep the money. John didn't get it. But certainly John felt something. What in the world is what's happening? It, he didn't sort it out until later. And likely, uh, he's the only one who heard what Jesus said. Jesus dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas, and he says, what you're going to do, go get it done. And in verse 30, Judas left, and as soon as he did, Jesus said, interesting, his, his spirit was disquieted. Somebody's going to betray me. And then he says, go, do what you're going to do, do it quickly. And then as soon as he did that, he said, now, now at this time, immediately is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. The betrayal was complete. It simply has to work itself out over time. Now is the Son of Man Glorified. Now the religious ruler's final solution to the Jesus problem was in full motion. The Son of Man, Jesus, though, in that will shine in His greatest glory and God will shine gloriously in Him. Later, just a short time later actually, of all the disciples, I think only John got it. Only John could fully comprehend the gravity of the words that Jesus spoke. Even though he heard, it had not registered. But he fully understood in a short order. Have you ever had a paradigm shift? you know what a paradigm shift is? 
John had one, I'm sure. Because it's, it's funny when you see things in a, in a whole, entirely, completely different way. And it was only then that John saw Judas in a different light. And all that time when he thought he was the protector of the money, all that time that he thought he was the righteous one, the one who was the keeper of the finances, the one who distributed equitably to the poor, the one who bought food and made other arrangements for him, suddenly realized that Judas just wanted all that for himself. He wanted the power. He wanted the control. The expensive perfume that could be sold to help others. No, 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 not help others. To help Judas. He finally, I believe, understood. Now the Son of Man is glorified. Of all the disciples in that moment, John was probably the most perplexed. But he didn't have time to be perplexed about it too much, at least based on what he had heard and before the actual event. Because the Lord continues. He says, My little children. He said, Little children. Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the, Jew, uh, to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Little children, I am leaving you. You know, I wonder if they heard that statement. You know, so there, there are some things that people say that have the power to wash everything else out of your mind. And I'm leaving you as one of those. On the other hand, I don't think they got it. Uh, They didn't get many things. I mean, after all, Jesus had told them many times He was going to die. He was going to give His life. They didn't get it then. Perhaps they just thought, you know what, Lord? There is no place that you can go that we can't go. No place you can go that I can't follow. Peter said as much in 36 and 37. And of course, Jesus doesn't really reprimand him, but gives him a heavy dose of the truth about what's going to happen that night. This word, little children, is uh, in the original, this word technia. And it occurs only here in John's Gospel. In fact, it occurs nowhere else in the New Testament outside of the first John. And some have argued there's another perfectly good word for child or children uh, in, in Greek, pation, which is another Word means little child, but some have argued that the difference is primarily this, uh, something along the lines of, I saw a child playing in the park, i.e. a pation, right? But technia would be, uh, I saw uh, a child who is a relative of mine playing in the park, kinship. It has this notion of kinship. So I want to move from these things to this word new. Because much of what we understand about this passage pivots around this single word, new. So what does new mean? The Oxford Dictionary defines it this way. Produced, introduced, or discovered recently, or now for the first time, not existing before. That's number one. Number two, they say it's already existing, but seen, experienced, or acquired recently now for the first time. Kind of more like a new, they discovered something that already existed or something. And then third, beginning anew in a, in a, a, a transformed way. And so, so how can we take this then? 
when you look at the text, is this a new command designed to supersede? I mean, when he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, I don't know. Didn't he say that the greatest, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and your neighbor as yourself? I mean, so what he's saying in that sense is hardly new. Moses said it. So it's like, uh, you know, in Moses, Leviticus 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, uh, or even, you know, one that Jesus identified himself with in Matthew 22 about loving God with all your being. Is he overriding 1,400 years of biblical history with this new command? Or perhaps one could argue that it's New in the sense that while it existed previously, no one had actually apprehended it. No one knew what it was. No one could capture it. No one could find it. And, and now it's new in the sense that you can actually get a hold of it. And finally, it could be that Jesus was defining it in a new way, a transformative way and a descriptive way. Thankfully, unlike English, Greek is a little more precise. I love that. I was going to do initially, but I didn't have enough enough time uh, to do a, a full thing on it. But there there are a couple of things that I really like about the English language, why it's hard to learn. And it's hard to learn because it doesn't make any sense, a lot of it. So, I mean, right, if, if teachers taught, why don't preachers prot? You know, I mean, you know, it's 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 where you 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 uh, drive on the parkway and park on the driveway, stuff like that. just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, new, we've got all these meanings for new, and so you can, you can figure it out this way. But in, in the original here, there's this little Greek word, kainos, which never came over to us. Neos did, N-E-O-S, it did. neonatal. Neo this, neo that. They even made a movie where this guy's name was Neo, right? I mean, that was loaded. Okay, so you have these, but the kainos didn't come to us into, into English. So the word here is not neos, which means new, boom, just now, came on. It, what it means is it's different in terms of respect to quality. There's something about it that's new that hasn't been there before, even though it's old. Whereas neos is new in terms of time, recency. So how important important is that word? This book is divided up into two parts. First part is the Old Testament. Second part is the the New Testament. Neos or kainos? Kainos. With respect to quality, it's right there in in this book, the new dispensation. Just as an aside, the word dispensation comes from the word oikonomia, which should sound familiar to it. It should sound like economy because that's where that word comes from. It simply means a way of doing business. So a dispensation is simply God's way of doing business at a particular time. That's all it is. Household management, that's all it is. New, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. You have newness of life in Romans. You have newness of spirit again in Romans. You have a new name. 
New heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, new song. Hebrews 10.20, a new and living way through the veil. That is to say, His flesh. And, and here's the striking thing about the way John handles this commandment. In verse 35, Jesus said this. By this, by what? By this, the what is that you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what does all this come down to? It comes down to this. To be a disciple does not simply mean to be outwardly aligned with a church, a movement, or a name, but to be miraculously transformed by the Spirit of Christ into a loving believer. As Jesus put it earlier in John, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And love is how you can know this has happened. We know that we have passed. In fact, First John says it. We know we have passed out of death into life because what? Because we love our brothers. That's not all. In the past, I've, I've uh, looked at this verse. My mind's always focused on the quality of this uh, love such that He would give His life for us. This time I, I focused on that. Yes, of course. But there's something else. And that is this. What is the purpose? What is the aim? What is the goal of this love? Now this will turn it right back around to my opening illustration. It is the mechanism by which all people know something. And that is they know that we belong to Christ. Apparently the primary reason disciples are to love one another is to attract the lost. And why is it then that this love proves discipleship and also witness as a part of that? And the answer comes as he continues, as we continue to look at this word new. That what's new here is the way and manner in which that we love, as Jesus loved us. Well, at that point, he had not yet given his life on the cross, so how had he loved us? He loved us. By being there for us. He loved us by washing the disciples' feet. But this was, this was new in terms of quality. The Son of God coming to the earth, laying down His life. The degree of greatness and the degree of sacrifice had never happened before. It was, it was new in its quality. In that His sacrifice became our standard. Second, it was new in its extent. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan, we think of that, oh, how nice and so forth, the Good Samaritan. We don't understand how the Samaritan was hated and reviled in that time. So Jesus extended the definition of who you're to love, not just disciples, neighbors, but it's to go beyond religion. It's to go beyond race. It goes to anyone who crosses our path, even our enemies. And finally, it was new in the sense of the disciples' continuing apprehension of it. The love of Jesus in the cross is inexhaustible. 
will never be able to plumb its depths. But, discipleship is never alone. It is not for our personal growth and consumption only. It is not exclusively uh, even our relationship with Christ. It is ever and it is always coupled to reaching others for Him. And that's what makes us different. Why would Christ care if all people knew we were His? Why does He care? What does it matter that somebody knows you're a Christian? What does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters. It's because we love each other because that love turns people to Him so that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the result. It's not something you strive for. Don't try to love anything or anybody. That doesn't work. Love comes from something else. It comes from being together, the love that Christ is talking about, yoked in Christ's work. It is not the cause of it. It's the result of it. And this is why all people see and are drawn to Christ because it is not founded on personality. It is not founded on season of life or station of life. It is founded on Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Father, we are deeply grateful for who You are, for what You have done in our, in our lives. Lord, so often we tend to find something that we expend our energies and time and efforts on and the only person that it serves is ourselves. Lord, You did not give gifts. You did not give love. You did not give commands. You did not give anything for the exclusive purpose of our enjoyment. You gave it so that we might reach out to others. And that which we have experienced in You, we may pass on some way, somehow, through Your Spirit to others. We thank You. We praise You through Christ our Lord. Amen.